This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.51, All Together Now. And as always, we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and we did it. We finished another one. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta no longer, and ready to be new to a new series. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 325 patrons and subscribers. That's so many patrons. I feel like we only just hit 300. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Mugrim, Dr. Flanagan, Oh no. and Phil. MSB would not be possible without your support. In Plague Life updates, the sourdough starter I was growing has progressed well and I made a first loaf of bread with it. It was delicious. I am very pleased. Maybe Lieutenant Matilda to your patrons should get some starter in their patron reward. But I know one of you is a professional bread maker and I would be embarrassed for you to judge my handiwork. (laughs) This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 50, Riders in the Skies. Next week on July 4th we will be publishing The very last episode of Season 2, 2.52, We'll Meet Again, in which we'll discuss our thoughts on the series as a whole and respond to questions and comments from listeners like yourselves. So if you have questions or comments about Zeta, things you've been dying to ask us, theories, interpretations, or perspectives that you'd like to share, or anything you think we missed, don't wait. You have just a couple more days to send us an email at gundampodcast at gmail.com with the subject line, Zeta Q&A. Make sure you get those emails into us by June 30th. And after that, we are going on a month-long hiatus, during which we'll be preparing for Season 3 and Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta. Love it or hate it, we promise there will be lots to talk about when MSB returns to your podcast feed on August 8th, 2020. After the recap and our talkback, we will be discussing Sirocco and The O. But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network. The audio you're about to hear is real. It was originally discovered during salvage operations in the area around Grips 2 and was painstakingly pieced together by a documentary film crew from partial recordings retrieved from the communication systems of multiple scrapped mobile suits after the battle. Due to political pressure, it was removed from who? The Jared something or other story, Alex Alex Child's award-winning documentary about the many forgotten casualties of the Grips conflict. Since then, it has remained tucked away inside the Federation Information Bureau's archives, unheard until today. Lieutenant Commander Nina, come back. You're not certified to fly that bound dock. You can't just take it. (laughs) Yes, I can. 
I'm doing it right now. Stop her! Stop her! Hello, I'm Nina Nina's daughter, the voice of truth. Die, Ayug scum! I said the Titans were on the road to inevitable victory, and if they aren't going to win this war, I'll do it myself. What is that? Where is that coming from? Oh, smooth flatterers, go over the sea, go to my country. Tell her she is mighty among the nations. Do it rhetorically. Say there are no oppressions. Say that it is a time of peace. That voice. Tom? No, no. Tom is a lie. There is only Gates Kappa. Say that labor is pleasant. Say that there are no oppressions. Speak of the federal virtues and you- This isn't news, this is poetry! Say that the keepers of shops pay a fair wage to women. Get out of my head! Honest and desirous of good above all things. You will not lack your reward. Say that I am a traitor and a cynic. Say that art is well served by the ignorant pretenders. You will not lack your reward. Where is that coming from? Is it you? Or you? Praise them that are praised by the many. You will not lack your reward. Call this a time of peace. Shut up, shut up, shut up! Speak well of exploiters. Speak well of the men in control. Executives only think of profits and how to exploit reporters. Or if anything else, how to humiliate them. Speak of the profundity of reviewers. Speak of the accuracy of reporters. Speak of the unbiased press. I am not a liar! You've reported more false stories than I ever have! Do all this and refrain from ironic touches. You will not lack your reward. What is this light? It's like an on-air sign, turning on and off. No, it's something else. I have to report on it. How do I get out of here? Speak hey, let me out of here. Of I need to go report on location. Say that you love your fellow men. Oh, most magnanimous liar. Hey, hey, you just left this bound dock here. Do you mind if I take it? Why would I need a mobile suit when I can hear the news of the universe? Oh yeah, things are finally looking up for Lieutenant Jared Mesa. And now the recap for Riders in the Skies. Camille takes Emma and shelters in an old wreck, while explosions and laser fire continue unabated. Hang in there, he urges her, but Emma knows that she is dying. Kneeling on the floor, he cradles her in one arm and holds her hand. With the last bits of energy she has, Emma desperately insists that Camille absorb her life and use it to win the war. Once he agrees, she calms 
Eyes closed, voice low, she reassures Camille that he has many people watching over him. He will not be alone. He stays with her until she passes away, his tears shining as they float through the air. Having decided to fire the colony laser at the Titans and Axis forces, Bright orders the Argama to get within communications range. Three mobile suits are racing toward the structure, Soroko and Haman to disable the laser, and Shar to defend it. But with two against one, Shar struggles. Soroko manages to destroy several of the cores, and Haman's kubele cuts an arm from the Hyakushiki. Shar is forced to run, and by the time Haman and Soroko find the Hyakushiki, Shar has abandoned it and proceeded on foot into the colony. The Argama is a sitting duck, but they must stay and defend the colony laser, which is warming up but not yet ready to fire. Camille receives orders to go defend the massive weapon, and says a last goodbye to Emma Chui. Char wanders through the colony and finds himself on the stage of an old, dark theater. Spotlights come up on him, and Haman appears out in the audience, holding a gun. Soroko stands across the room from her, and they are all in a stalemate. Haman still wants Char to come over to her side, but is willing to kill him if he refuses. Why won't he join her in re-establishing the Zabis? The revival of an aristocratic family will be easy for common people to understand, and once they have power, they can decide what sort of world they want to create. Char is adamant that she is just recreating the mistakes of the One-Year War. Haman presses him. Suppose Ayug wins. What is his plan then? But he doesn't have one. He's afraid of guiding the world in the wrong direction, and is sure that with or without his guidance, humanity will awaken into new types. Disgusted with him, Haman says, people like you who cannot see and accept what is necessary must be eliminated. She seems ready to fire when Camille enters from the other side of the stage, firing his own gun and sending Haman and Soroko ducking for cover. An eerie sound echoes through their minds, a strange feeling overpowers them and Char wonders, is Camille doing this? The ones who need to be eliminated are the ones pulled by Earth's gravity, Camille shouts. But Soroko ridicules him for being so emotional. Petty sentiment can only lead the world to destruction. The stalemate continues until Fa bursts through the door at the upper level of the theater. Her cover fire allows Char and Camille to take off through a backstage door, and she runs after them, as they all return to their mobile suits. The colony laser is finally ready to fire. Although the Argama is taking heavy damage, Bright is determined not to fire until Camille, Fa, and Char are clear. Haman and Soroko chase the three, and Camille seems determined to destroy them both, even if it means keeping them inside the laser and sacrificing himself in the process. The laser is energy critical and could explode if it's not fired soon, but still Bright tells them to wait. Fa and Char will not leave without Camille, and Char tells him, Youngsters like you are the ones who will save the world. Begrudgingly convinced, Camille agrees to leave the two enemy leaders behind and fly to safety. Bright is finally able to give the order to fire, and the beam of the colony laser tears through the enemy fleets. The losses convince Soroko that they can no longer defeat Ayug. He searches the battlefield for the Jupitris, but is soon pursued by Camille, who is determined not to let him get away. Char and Haman dogfight nearby, 
but the Hyakushiki is outclassed and gets more and more damaged. He finally tricks her into a wrecked ship, grabbing hold of the Kubele and smashing it into a wall. But she can still operate the bits, and in short order, Haman turns the Hyakushiki into a limbless heap. Her moment of triumph ends quickly. Char makes a last suicidal attack on the ship's exposed electrical system. The explosions tear the entire ship apart, and Haman only just manages to escape. Returning to the Guamban, she assures Minerva that if they regroup and prepare, they will fight on, and they will win. All the while, Camille and Sirocco fight on. In the cockpit of the Zeta Gundam, Camille talks aloud, to himself and to the spirits he knows are out there. I am willing to sacrifice my life to stop Sirocco. I'm sure you all understand. A voice from the ether advises him on tactics. Lila Mirarira appears to urge Camille on. Emma's spirit appears, and Katz's. I'll let you use my body, Camille tells them. An ethereal Sarah tries to protect Sirocco. And although the spirits of Rekoa, Rosamia, and Four try to shift her, it is Katz who convinces her to stand aside, to see what Sirocco really is and what Camille is trying to do. Spirits rush to the Zeta like streaks of white mist, forming a glowing radiance that suddenly becomes red. Sirocco goes from laughing at the idea that spirit energy will defeat the O, to urging his mobile suit on as the Zeta pursues him at unimaginable speed. The Zeta pins the O, one of its spikes piercing the cockpit and crushing Sirocco. Half of the faceplate of Camille's helmet explodes outward. As he is dying, a blue aura emanates from Sirocco and he tells Camille, I'm taking your soul with me. The blue aura becomes brighter and brighter and eventually envelops the Zeta in a blinding flash. Fa rushes to retrieve the Zeta, frantically radioing Camille. He seems dazed. I can see a light, like a large star turning on and off, he says, smiling and laughing to himself. His speech is childlike, and he seems not to remember that he's in a mobile suit. He complains that it's hot and asks someone to come get him. Fa is frightened and calls out to the bridge of the Argama for help as she drags the Zeta back. As the ship flies on, Earth remains in the background, seemingly untouched by these events. The limbless Hyakushiki drifts between us and Earth, its cockpit hanging open. This episode gives us more than any other episode in this whole series some distillation of what exactly it is that Haman believes, that Shar believes, and that Sirocco believes. And most of that, but not all of it, takes place in this abandoned theater <laughs> inside the Colony Laser colony, which is so theatrical, and they absolutely hang a lampshade on it when 
They refer to each other as actors. Haman talks about how the theatricality of this setting must appeal to Sirocco. Yeah, the characters are well aware of what they're about here. Uh, it's a very artificial setting. Who is operating the spotlight? <laughs> Good question. This is the future. Maybe it's movement activated. Um, does it matter? I mean... No, I just thought it was funny. Given the perfection of her timing, maybe Fa has been operating it the whole time. Fa is the stage manager. Well, and I was actually going to bring up the spotlight because it adds to the artificiality of the whole thing. There is no one operating it. And yet it comes on at the perfect moment. And it's not just one spotlight, it's two spotlights, which cast two shadows off of Char, emphasizing his double nature as Char and as Quattro, as this savvy operator whose motives are never quite revealed, and as the heroic leader of Ayug. I see those three characters and their conversations in this episode as a series of sort of overlapping circles. Because I think it really drives home what certain of the characters have in common. And sometimes the commonalities are between Shar and Sirocco. Sometimes it's between Sirocco and Haman. Sometimes it's between Shar and Haman. None of them is so completely different from the others that there's nothing in common. I agree completely. And this episode is set up structurally to be about the clash between these three leaders of these three factions. I think it's really good. I think it's really important. I like how it was done. I kind of think it should have been done like 10 episodes ago. <laughs> I agree with you as a matter of personal taste, but given how they end the episode, how they end the series, I think it actually makes sense that they didn't address it until now. Hmm. When you view this episode and the previous one as one complete integrated work, and I think you absolutely have to, for one thing, they were planned out, written by the same person. These are both uh, Endo Akinori episodes. He wrote them together. Uh, and when taken together, they each fulfill a, a separate role. Episode 49, the prior episode, was basically about clearing out the roster, finishing all of these individual storylines one way or another. And then we come into this episode, the last episode, with a much reduced cast and a strong focus on Shar, Haman, and Sirocco, three characters who were barely present in the prior episode because they were setting up for this three-way confrontation. Who do you want to start with? Or which, which pair do you want to start with if we're talking about them in pairs? Well, let's start with Shar. All right. I was tickled, actually, when Sirocco calls Shar a new type wannabe because we've often discussed how Shar is a stunted human being in respect to his just like general development and also with respect to his new type abilities. He starts first Gundam as very strong and then is exceeded by all of these other characters and he never gets any better. I don't know that you can look at Quattro and say that he is in any way a better pilot, a more powerful new type than Shar was at the end of first Gundam. I don't think he is. He's got bigger guns. He spent all that time in the gym instead of meditating. He has a flashier mobile suit. Well, but does he? It's bright gold. Right, but his whole thing is he has whatever is the flashiest mobile suit. That's fair. At the time. So it's just flashiness inflation. Everybody else has red mobile suits now, so he has to have something else. 
The thing that really interests me about Char Quattro Shaquatro in this episode is that unlike Sirocco and Haman, he ends the episode with his personal philosophy still unrevealed. I'm not so sure. I think he states it fairly clearly. It's just, it's such a passive position that it's difficult to recognize it <laughs> as a position. You almost can't believe that it's his. And by you there, I mean me. <laughs> I can't believe that that's actually Char's position. I can because it would explain a lot about his behavior. <laughs> well, let's say what it is. All right. Basically, unless somebody acts against it, humans will just naturally become new types all on their own and he doesn't have to do anything. He also conveys a very clear fear of doing the wrong thing. He tells Haman, you're making the same mistakes. He expresses his passivity as a fear of making things worse through his own actions, that he almost feels like it's better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing. So do you think at this point, it's that he is still indecisive? I think it takes a lot of decisiveness to decide you're not going to do anything. <laughs> I don't think it's he can't decide what to do. I think he's decided it's better for him to do nothing. This actually reminded me of something. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read the Earthsea books, but in one of them, the main character from a couple of the books, Ged, becomes a very, very powerful wizard. But as he becomes older, he sees his main job as not doing things, as not interfering. Because he comes at it from the position of, you know, very powerful magic warps reality itself. And most of the time, it's better to do nothing. <laughs> he can't predict all of the fallout from his actions. Even the smallest change accomplished by magic will have repercussions that ripple out through the world effectively infinitely. And so he needs to know that action is absolutely necessary before doing anything. And I think that's how Char feels. I think Char is wrong, but I think that's how Char feels. And that's why he likes to fight. In fighting, it's very clear what needs to be done. It's obvious you have to fight or you die. You have to fight or your comrades die. That's clear. That does help make sense of uh, his line later to Camille, which is essentially old people like me. He's 27, so elderly people like me <laughs> are not going to be the ones to save the world. That's for you younger folks. So Char perhaps is saying people our age, he's talking to 26-year-old uh, Sirocco and 21-year-old Haman, we're too old to make these decisions. It's our job to step aside and let the younger generation have the reins for all of like five years before they become too old and then they need to pass it on to the next generation. Should we see Char in light of that line as a like Tomino Mary Sue? Like, is he a, <laughs> is he a Tomino self-insertion? Hmm. A, a mouthpiece for the author? Yeah. I think it's possible. Is this why Tomino is so cagey? He actually thinks it's better if he doesn't say anything. That may very well be true. There is a bit of a parallel between Char and Sirocco here in that Char wants this sort of passive role. And Sirocco is accused by Camille and Haman and other people of being an observer, of distancing himself from what's actually happening in the war. He describes himself as merely a witness to history. He's obviously very active. 
but he casts himself as inactive. He, in fact, accuses Shar of pretending to be inactive while actually trying to control everything. But I think, in fact, he's projecting that's Sirocco. Camille makes the point of how grotesque it is for someone to take part in war and take that observational attitude because people are dying, people are suffering, mm -hmm. people are having their lives irrevocably changed. And so to participate, but to behave emotionally as if you are on the sidelines and, oh no, I'm not getting involved and none of this is actually important and I don't feel any feelings about it is grotesque. That detachment is a lot of what gives Sirocco his power, his aura that blankets the battlefield, his ability to stand back apparently doing nothing as others do his bidding. I was deeply struck by Sirocco's insistence that emotion is wrong. Basically, he cannot imagine anybody expressing emotion unless it's part of a manipulation or a ploy. You know, he tells Camille when Camille gets angry, oh, you, you might win over the common folk with that display of raw emotion. He can't imagine that Camille is just expressing his feelings. <laughs> and he accuses Shar of not really being calm. He's like, no, I'm the calm one. This felt horribly familiar because it's a common argument tactic from certain people that, oh, you're too emotional. You can't possibly be coming at this logically. That somehow any sort of passion or emotion means that you are automatically wrong. He creates this false association between calm detachment and correctness. And this argument between emotion versus detachment is going to come up again later in the episode. But we'll talk about that when we get there. What Sirocco and Haman have in common is they are both fundamentally autocrats who believe that people are bad and can't be good unless someone makes them. They need to be shepherded. You know, Haman says that her whole reason for reviving the Zabis is that it's a story people will buy into. Oh, you know, the revival of this grand aristocratic family that were almost wiped out. Like, that's a story people can get behind and understand. And that will allow me to consolidate power so that I can create the world I want. And I don't know exactly what that is yet, but I'll figure it out later. This is the offer she makes to Char. We can still work together, you and I. In fact, until the very end, she is still trying to get Char to join her. And ultimately, she's saying once we consolidate power, once we have the whole of the human species in our hand, then you and I can decide what we're going to do with them. Sirocco really pursues power for its own sake. He again expresses an idea that I've seen floated and have a lot of problems with, but that anyone who manages to get power deserves power. That their mere ability to rise to power proves merit. Fitting that he would end up at the top of the Titans because that is their whole deal. The Titans are power, and the point of the Titans is to retain the power that they have. And while Haman seems genuinely to want to create a better world for people, like that is the point, she thinks quote-unquote common people are kind of dumb, but worth protecting. She does want to create a better world for certain people. Sirocco actually does not care. He thinks common people are a burden on the geniuses of society, that all they do is hold other people back, that there's a tiny number of worthy people who run everything, and that that is correct and as it should be. 
I think Quattro's position is that while Haman may have better intentions, the end result would be the same. Because power's number one goal is protecting itself. Once she had power, what kind of greater world is she going to make if she ever feels threatened in that control? If she ever feels like there's dissent? How is she going to react? What kind of a world can she create when it's all about amassing power? This might be what Shar thinks, but it's Camille who says it. When he says, what's the point of creating a world that ignores people's feelings, that ignores people's thoughts? Common people. Exactly. And this, I think, connects to what Shar was saying about people changing if only they are given the time to do so. Because Shar really wants a kind of mystical transcendence. He doesn't just want order. He doesn't just want to be in charge. He wants the people to become new types in his conception of what a new type is. And Camille, I think, quite wisely says that in a society under the jackbooted heel of the Zabi clan restored or under Sirocco's, you know, League of Extraordinary Geniuses, <laughs> people will not have the spiritual freedom necessary to expand their consciousnesses. It will be too stifling. Camille also goes a step further than Char in a direction that I like, which is Char seems to think this will all happen naturally and does not seem to have given any consideration to the, you know, what conditions would enable that to happen? What could you do to help that along? And I'm not talking about the cyber new type thing. I'm talking about how would you change society to encourage that kind of empathetic and empathic <laughs> development in people. And he sort of writes it off as, oh, it'll happen on its own. And I think he's wrong. <laughs> Camille says, we have to get rid of the people held down by Earth's gravity. But even that goal is not worth mass death. Yeah. A theme that has been running through all of Zeta and is now brought into sharp focus in this episode is the equivalence between the Titans and Ayug and Axis in terms of their means. Go all the way back to the first episode where Ayug steals Titans' mobile suits, literally taking the enemy's weapon and repurposing it. And now in the final arc of Zeta, the Ayug has seized the Titans' super weapon, this atrocity machine, the colony laser, and not just to try to keep it away from the Titans, in this episode, they use it themselves. They are using the weapons of the enemy. If the means are equivalent, then what distinguishes Ayug from the Titans? And one answer to that question is ideology. But Camille is saying no ideology is worth all of this. But Camille is not unilaterally disarming. Camille recognizes that even though he thinks nothing is worth all of this killing, the only way to stop the Sirocos and the Hamans and the Jareds and the Basques of the world is to fight them. But there's a difference between killing the leaders and the massacre of common people, I think, is probably the key point there. Yes, and that revelation is identical to the one that Amuro had in the last two episodes of First Gundam. When he goes into the Battle of Abawaku, although he wasn't able to successfully do this, Amuro's goal was to fight his way through, find the leaders of the Zabi clan, and destroy them. That's why he wouldn't commit to a battle with Shar until Shar forced it on him. 
Amaro was not able to accomplish that goal. Here, Camille is. Camille also describes Sirocco as someone who cannot be allowed to live in this time, which is an extreme version of something that I think young people say to older folks all the time, which is like, you're behind the times. Get with the program. <laughs> like, your, your viewpoints are now out of step with the direction society is moving to like an unacceptable degree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> society is progressing and we cannot let you hold it back. Yeah, none of this is political at all. <laughs> <laughs> this scene in the theater reminds me of the ending of First Gundam in another way, because the artificiality of the space combined with everybody getting out of their mobile suits to have this confrontation of wills and ideologies in person as they sort of duel with each other is very similar to when Amuro and Shar and eventually Sela clashed in that opulent old-style chamber with the rapiers in First Gundam. Leaving their mobile suits exposes them a bit. You'll notice Haman and Sirocco are both not wearing normal suits. Shar is unmasked. And one of the best things about this scene is how the three of them are essentially in a complete deadlock. It's a standoff. None of them can actually get the upper hand because ultimately they're all just butting heads and none of them are right. What interrupts the deadlock <laughs> is first the arrival of Camille, but that's not enough. It is right after Sirogo has been heaping abuse on the common people and talking about how the common people can never uh, influence the course of history. It's all down to the work of a few geniuses when who should arrive but Fa <laughs> bursting in, firing off a couple of rounds and completely dissolving this standoff. Love Fa. Fa is a treasure and a hero. But I think Fa is meant to represent those common people. Sirocco would not consider her to be one of the geniuses who decide the course of history. She also is less caught up in the ideological concerns than anyone else. Fa has significant clarity of purpose. She wants to help get rid of the Titans because of what they did to her home and her family. But even more than that, she wants to protect Camille. Camille is her closest childhood friend, closest person in the world to her now. She wants to keep him safe if she can. And she helps him multiple times in this episode. Fa doesn't have any anxiety about what is the right thing to do. Fa knows what the right thing to do is. As they're leaving, when the five of them are still inside the colony laser, I think Camille is willing to stay and die. I think he knows the colony laser is going to fire so long as he can keep Haman and Sirocco trapped there. What convinces him to leave is that while he's willing to sacrifice himself, he's not willing to sacrifice Fa or Shar. Absolutely, yes. As he put it, I'm going to finish this. Uh, but Fa and Shar refuse to leave him there. And just as in the previous episode, we see a captain willing to put an entire ship's full of people in danger to maybe save three people. In Beckner's case, his own bridge crew was like, we have to go help Emma. Here... Bright's bridge crew is like, um, why aren't we firing? All our targets are getting away. We're getting smashed. What, what are you doing? There is, however, another difference, which is that while Emma was a good soldier and a valuable member of the AU piloting staff, Quattro is 
the leader of AU. And maybe irreplaceable <laughs> yeah. as a figurehead. Yeah. So from a strategic perspective, Bright's decision here is... More defensible. Yeah. Now we do want to talk about Camille and ultimately how the episode ends. But to get there, we have to go all the way back to how the episode begins and start with Emma and her last scene. So this is not about Camille, but before we get into talking about Camille, I need to express my frustration because after all of her independence, after all of her personal struggle, in death, Emma literally fuels the excellence of a man. Yeah. That's messed up. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, we can move on now. <laughs> we can talk about Camille now. Emma describes the Zeta as a machine that can absorb people's souls and turn it into its own power. This may be a, an oblique kind of reference to the biosensor, which I mentioned in the previous episode. It doesn't need to be. It could also just be Emma sort of talking in abstract terms about the Zeta. And she also saw its exceptional attack in the previous episode and may have interpreted what was happening. She probably felt some new typey things. She has some insights about it here. But really, she's talking about Camille as much as she's talking about the Zeta. Camille absorbs people's life force and it makes him stronger. And ultimately what she tells him, get strong and then use that strength to end the war, is not a new idea. They've been talking about it in Zeta for a long time, and probably the first time it was ever brought up was actually by Jared justifying gassing a colony of civilians. Surely the war will be over once we commit this war crime. Aside from the human battery aspect, it's quite a touching scene. Camille stays with her while she's dying. She knows she's dying. He holds her hand. She tells him that he's not going to be alone. I found this very astute because she has realized how lonely he must be. Everyone he gets close to dies on him. And not to knock Camille because a lot of this is outside of his control, but... For all that they affected him deeply, his relationships with Four and Rosamia were not close relationships. He has no peers. He has no, no one to depend on, no one to talk to. He has no Kai, no Hayato, no Sela. Theoretically, Fa could be that person. He is clearly that person for her, but he still feels as if he's holding her a bit at a distance. And part of that... It's sort of a classic trope, right? The loneliness of a hero. Hmm. But Amaro in First Gundam overcame that. He had his loneliness, especially early on, but towards the end, a lot of time was spent on showing his camaraderie with the other pilots, his familial relationship with the whole white base crew. The culminating scene of First Gundam is his reunion with this found family and how touching and wonderful that is. He saves them and then they save him. Camille doesn't have that. The only person left to save him at the end is Fa. And I think a lot of the distance that he keeps from Fa and from Katz, who's the other person who could potentially have been that for him, comes from the fact that they entered the story later, after Camille had already suffered all of these tragedies. And so he's afraid of losing them. If they get too close to him, they'll die. 
he's also at a point once Katz is introduced where he's more interested in being a mentor to Katz than he is in being Katz's friend. Which is unfortunate because Katz is not looking for a mentor but might have accepted a friend. But would he have accepted instructions and advice from a friend? Probably not. So, you know. But he didn't accept instructions or advice from Camille as is. No, but, you know, as you described from Camille's perspective, he might have seen that sort of senpai relationship as potentially more able to increase Katz's survivability. <laughs> sure. I'm not blaming Camille for how he chose to interact with Katz. He talks to the spirits, right? He says, I'm sure you all understand to sort of lend me your power. Uh, and he says, I'll let you use my body, which makes me come back to the whole spirit possession idea. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He invites them in. And then you see the Zeta absorbing all of these spirits. Well, Sirocco sees the Zeta and we see through his eyes as it absorbs these spirits that sure look a lot like sperm, don't they? They do. Let us not pass on from this without examining for a moment which new type ghosts are included in this altogether now moment and which ones are excluded. The surprise appearance of Lila Milarira from all the way back in episode seven, a character who, except for that transcendent moment upon her death, gave no indication of being a new type and had no connection to Camille whatsoever, except for the part where he killed her. Right. They fought twice or something. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it was a big deal for him when he killed her, but that she would have lingered on haunting him ever after. And then to give him advice. Right. Let me help you out, kid. I mean, I can understand why she would look at Jared and Camille and decide to go with Camille. But even so, her appearance here, while welcome, because we love Lila, Lila's the best, uh, is a surprise. Also present, of course, Four and Rosamia and Katz. Uh, Katz the only man in this group. Rekawa is there. Emma is there. Sarah makes an appearance. Although on the other side, Sarah shows up to try to block their attack on Sirocco until Katz disarms her. I wondered if some of the little sperm-looking spirits weren't non-new types. Could be. The absence, however, of certain characters does feel like rather a slap in the face, especially given the appearance of obscure Lila Milarira. No Apoli, no Roberto. These are characters who meant a lot to Camille, whose death affected him greatly. I'm not saying Lieutenant Batch should have been there, but maybe Lieutenant Batch should have been there too. A theory. Katz is there to deal with Sarah, not to help Camille. Camille is only being helped by women because this show is sexist like that. <laughs> Whoops. Maybe Lieutenant Appley is off helping Fa. Oh, he did seem like he liked Fa. The shot where Four and Rosamia are sort of like hanging off Camille, telling Sirocco, this mobile suit can turn spirits into power. Like, <laughs> it feels like the cover of a trashy sci-fi novel. Like, yeah. dude draped in beautiful women did not like. I have this difficulty with this scene and also with all of Zeta, where <laughs> I have to reconcile how much I like what they are doing versus how clumsily it's being done. <laughs> And I think a lot of us who really like Zeta, and I really like Zeta, uh, what we do is we have this idealized notion of Zeta in our heads that we love. And it doesn't 100% match, 
uh, the Zeta that's actually on the screen. And then I show up and pop some bubbles. Uh, sometimes maybe a little bit. <laughs> when he lands the killing blow on Sirocco, it's quite graphic. It's quite a shocking scene. One of the spikes of the Zeta drives through the cockpit. And one eye of Camille's faceplate, or rather the area in front of one eye, smashes open. I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, breaking the faceplate like that is uh, part of the Gundam visual language that indicates uh, usually when a new type is dying or like some incredibly powerful blast of energy. of energy. Like if you think back to when Lala died, one of the things is that she screams and her faceplate explodes mm -hmm. and it explodes outwards because of the pressure this scene where the Zeta smashes into the center of the O and penetrates the cockpit and crushes Sirocco's body is justifiably famous. It's also, I think, absolutely brilliant. It's one of the best parts of Zeta because what is happening is a direct conflict between Sirocco's ideal of detachment from the battlefield, which is giving him incredible power. It makes him seem untouchable versus Camille, who draws all of this power inside himself. The emotion of it, the power of his emotions radiates through his body and gives him great power, but it's internal power. It's the power of his own body and then uh, projected into his mobile suit, but not out into the battlefield. And then rather than trying to fight Sirocco, rather than trying to shoot him or cut him with a beam saber, Camille just crashes his body into Sirocco. He penetrates and destroys the protective membrane that separates Sirocco from the realities of the battlefield. He smashes through the mobile suit, which creates a layer of abstraction, again, between Sirocco's body and the violence that he is committing. And then he goes through the mobile suit into Sirocco, destroying the illusion that the mobile suit and the body are different. I had a sudden realization while we were talking about this. Was this scene the inspiration for Wash's death in Serenity? It might very well have been. Because there are some strong similarities there, uh, like something puncturing the cockpit mm -hmm. to kill the pilot. It's quite striking. Related to Sirocco's death and his obvious abundant new type power, we have this brief confrontation between Katz and Sarah. This scene with Katz and Sarah goes a long way towards showing how strong, how well defended, how untouchable Sirocco is. And I do truly believe that until Camille gathers all of these ghosts into himself and makes this last desperate attack, that Sirocco has been untouchable. But the show doesn't actually do the work of showing that Sirocco is untouchable. I think it's another case where I'm uh, projecting the Zeta that I want to exist onto the skeleton of the Zeta that is there. Right. I mean, Sirocco says, haha, you really think some frou-frou spirit energy is going to damage the O? <laughs> he can't believe what he's hearing. And there is a brief scene of Camille looking kind of overmatched. But then when the spirits come to the rescue... I'm just saying, I don't think this scene is executed as cleanly as it could be because... I don't think they sell Sirocco's invulnerability under normal circumstances hard enough to then make the summoning of the ghost army feel absolutely necessary. 
This is desperation for Camille, but I, I don't think they sell it. They are rather rushed for time. There are just so many loose ends to tie up, and they don't even manage to tie them all up. They know how to show absolute desperation and uh, stubborn resolve in the face of it because Camille and Char at the end are on parallel tracks, both of them outmatched by their opponents. Char especially, uh, he is not a new type of equal power. His mobile suit is antiquated by this point and in fact has been rather dismembered. His gun runs out of ammunition. He is in absolute desperate straits. And both of them are willing to die to take out this other person. But Camille does not die. Neither does Haman. And if you watch very closely at the end of the episode when the dismembered Yakushiki drifts across the screen, the cockpit is open. Oh, dun, dun, dun. how many times over the course of Zeta do you think Camille has wished that this all hadn't happened? Well, there are 50 episodes. He seemed pretty <laughs> into it in episodes one and two, so... 48 times. He appears to have gotten his wish. Yes. At least mentally. He can't even remember how a mobile suit works. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know how to operate it. He's like, it's hot in here. How do I get out? Someone help me. His instinctive desire is to escape from the mobile suit, to escape from this weapon that he has become trapped in. There is a an odd sort of cheerful childishness when he's like, oh, I see a, a flashing star, but it can't be a comet. A comet would be more like, bah. <laughs> but that childishness doesn't necessarily feel extreme. It doesn't necessarily feel like he's been made to be younger than he is. Just like the sum of his recent experiences have been wiped from him. I do think he's a little bit younger. I think the, the comets go swoosh. Line is meant to imply a level of childishness uh, that would not be appropriate for a 17-year-old. Fair. I could see a 17-year-old who's really into comets being like, and comets go, Wah! And looking back to the very beginning of the series, Camille was mesmerized by space. He loved looking out at space. So this is consistent for his character. There are a lot of different feelings about Camille's ending here. Um... Some people view it as very tragic, very harsh. A lot of what happens at the end of Zeta feels almost needlessly cruel to the characters. A lot of it feels just like nihilistic and pointless. But I strongly believe this ending is the best possible ending that Camille could have hoped for at this point. Yeah. He was ready to die. At times he's wanted to die. Camille has a fascination with childhood, with children, with childish things. He has wanted to go back. He has wanted to be free of this. He has desperately wanted to preserve something which is free of the war. Now he gets it. So for all that this is somewhat horrifying for Fa, this is not actually necessarily a bad thing for Camille. This does recall for Fa, perhaps, when she was saying a few episodes ago, when all of this is over, will it go back to the way things used to be when we were innocent children? What is unclear is, is he still him? Is he some sort of like generic person and doesn't even remember who he is? Or does he remember his own childhood and youth? Does he know who he is? Entirely unclear. We have no idea. Think back through Zeta, Four and Rosamia both asked these same questions. 
if you don't have your memories, are you still you? I don't know that there are clear answers. Certainly Zeta doesn't entirely take a position on the issue. But this theme of memory and the loss of it and going on with your life after that or trying to. Is the memory loss a curse or a kindness, a sort of blessing? He has struggled so much with some of the things he's had to do. Is it in fact a blessing to not remember? And for many people who experience trauma, it affects their memory because your psyche is trying to protect itself <laughs> from this very painful memory. And that's a thing that can happen naturally or in Camille's case, because of spirit magic. <laughs> also, while we don't know what happens after the final curtain falls on this episode, the Argama survives, the Zeta survives, but in his current state, Camille can no longer be used as a weapon. He is free of all of this. Hey, I was going to ask, what do you think it means that he's like, oh, there's a flashing light, like a sun turning on and turning off. Is it a comet? No, it can't be a comet. I bet Char was very close to death. And maybe that was the great light turning off and on. Hmm. And it's not a comet because he's not the red comet anymore. He's not Char anymore. He's not Quattro Bagina anymore. If he's alive, he will be some new thing. Hmm. Maybe. That is a very good interpretation I have never heard before. Because what else could he be talking about? I mean, he could be talking about a literal light, a, a flashing light on the Argama or something. He gets sort of engulfed in light when Sirocco dies. And so possibly he's seeing flashing lights as like an after effect of that light exposure. But I do think the reference to a comet. Yeah. That's peculiar. That's worth noting and is probably meaningful. And Fa gets to save him one last time. And besides saving Camille, she also brings back the empty Mark II. She looks at it and she says, oh, you want to go back to the Argama II, don't you? And this brings back to mind the prior episode when Camille in the Zeta and Fa in the Methus dragged Emma's damaged Mark II back to the Argama together. Now it's Fa bringing what little remains of that little three-person family that they had back to the Argama. And Haman's question remains unanswered. Now what? What was the point of all of this, and what happens next? And now, Tom's research on Sirocco and the O. Every one of the mobile suits designed by Paptimus Sirocco bears the designation PMX. In Gundam's naming conventions, X stands for experimental, and it designates a prototype suit, like the RX-78-2 Gundam. The M is for mobile suit, simply enough, and the P is for Paptimus Sirocco, because of course, he names his suits after himself. He is, after all, as haughty and arrogant a person as you may ever encounter. His name, the one that he gives to each of his mobile suits, is half mysterious and half overt. Whether you pronounce it Sirocco, Shiroko, Shirako, or Sirako, his last name is derived from the name of one of the Mediterranean winds, 
the hot wind that blows north from Africa, across the Mediterranean, and into southern Europe. It has different names in the different languages of the region, but it is called Shirako in Italian, Sirocco in Spanish, and in Libyan Arabic, it is called Ghibli. Yes, the famed Studio Ghibli and Paptimus Sirocco get their names from the same wind. The coincidence doesn't end there, actually. While the relationship between them is rarely discussed, at least in English, Tomino and Studio Ghibli co-founder Miyazaki Hayao are contemporaries. Both started working in anime in 1963, and although they started at different studios, during the 1970s, Tomino worked together with Miyazaki and one of the other co-founders of Ghibli, Takahata, on Anne of Green Gables, Heidi of the Alps, and Future Boy Conan. Takahata mentored Tomino on his storyboards, and Tomino says that it was Miyazaki's passion for animation that first made him think seriously about the unique challenges and possibilities of robot anime as a medium for telling real stories. Tomino's Paptimus Sirocco made his first appearance in the show in episode 11, Entering the Atmosphere, on May 11, 1985 but he isn't named in the show until episode 21, A Sign of Zeta, on July 20th of the same year. And in the interim, on June 15th, 1985, Miyazaki, Takahata, and a third person who isn't relevant right now, founded Studio Ghibli. Now, I don't know that there's anything significant to the fact that Sirocco and Ghibli were both named for the same weather phenomenon and that their names were publicly revealed within a few short weeks of each other. But it is the sort of coincidence that makes you go, huh. One of our Italian listeners, Aetius, wrote in to describe his own experience with the Scirocco wind. He wrote, in South Italy, it is considered a capricious wind. It brings sand and debris from far away. It brings the hot season, but also summer storms. And if it blows too long, it can blow for days on end. It brings headaches, mood swings, and violent behavior. It's a well-known wind that brings moody behavior and discomfort together with change. A particularly foolish person or someone who seems to have gone a bit mad might be said to be taken by the Shirako. And it's said that prior to Italian unification, being under the Shirako's influence was a mitigating factor for people accused of violent crimes against their families. So, you know, if Rekoa had survived long enough to find herself in front of a war crimes tribunal, maybe she would have tried falling back on that very old Italian legal precedent. Paptimus, or in the original Japanese, Paputemasu, is the trickier part of his name to work out. At first glance, Paptimus seems like a Latin word, but you will not be shocked to learn that there is in fact no such word. With no easy answer before us, we must instead make some educated guesses, and that means returning to what now seems to be the favorite Gundam naming strategy, anagrams. Let's work backwards starting with pa pu te ma su. In written Japanese, the pa syllable is closely related to the ha and ba syllables. If you remember from episode 2.43, when we covered the process of linguistic morphing that turned hound dog into bound dock, it only requires a tiny alteration 
to turn a ha into a ba, and it's the same thing to go from ba to pa. Next, skip to the end. Take the ma and su syllables at the end of paptimus and reverse them to get su ma. Remember, we did the same thing when we turned mori no kumasan into bolanok saman. Now we've turned paputé masu into baputé suma. Baputé suma is, it turns out, it just so happens, total coincidence, I'm sure, one of the ways to pronounce baptism in Japanese. That's right, he's named for the ceremony for formally inducting or converting a person to a new religion, and a wind that allegedly gives you headaches and violent mood swings. This one's a little on the nose, Zedigundam. Just a little bit on the nose there. Now, it's also possible that the Paptimus baptism part of his name is meant to allude to John the Baptist. Sirocco tries throughout the series, and especially here at the end, to position himself consciously not as the man of destiny himself, but a mere witness, a forerunner, or a precursor to the coming leader of the future, in the same way that John the Baptist is often treated as one who paved the way for Jesus. This would not be Zeta's first allusion to Christianity. You may recall that all the way back in podcast 2.22, we researched the story of Saint Miki the Kind, the 16th century Japanese Jesuit martyr whose name, for some reason, was written on Fa's shuttle when she delivered the Zeta Gundam to the Argama. The religious theme, albeit not necessarily Christian, runs through the last two of Sirocco's mobile suits, the Palace Athena, which was destroyed last episode, and his The O, destroyed in this one. Let me pause for a moment to make a note about The O. Often we call a mobile suit The Gundam, or The Methus, or The Mark II, but that's just us adding in the English definite article The when we talk about a mobile suit. It's not actually part of the name. But in the case of Sirocco's PMX-003, that the is an intrinsic part of the name, and since there's only one of the thing, we might very well call it the the O. But I think that's annoying to write, to say, and to hear, so I'm just going to call it the O, even when the the O would be more proper. In Japanese, it's Gio with the G rendered in katakana and the O as the letter O taken from the Latin alphabet. There are two theories that I've seen about the origin for the name, and while they come from two totally different directions, in an improbable linguistic coincidence spanning four different languages, they end up at the same place. And that is unlikely enough that I feel obliged to share them both with you. The first theory is that the O is derived from the Greek Theos, meaning God, which became Theos when the Romans borrowed it, and then descended into English as the root Theo, as in theology, theosophy, pantheon, and a word that is probably one of Sirocco's favorites, theocrat. Theo could be transcribed in Japanese as Jio, and since we've already talked extensively about Sirocco's messianic delusions, it fits that he would name his mobile suit God. The second theory is a little unusual and more complicated, but bear with me. According to this explanation, rather than being one word, the name G-O, or V-O, is actually composed of two parts. The G part is meant to evoke the English definite article the, 
because it conveys singularity. To say that this is the O is to state that there is nothing else like it. This is noteworthy because Japanese does not have a definite article. There is no word like the which can, by its mere presence, indicate that a particular thing is the only one of its kind. And in fact, nouns in Japanese have no grammatical number, which is to say that there is no distinction in form between singular and plural. As for the O part, it is not meant to express the sound O, but rather the shape of the Latin alphabet's letter O. This explains why the O is never rendered in katakana. The letter O in its ideal form is a perfect circle, but a truly perfect circle, or its three-dimensional equivalent, the perfect sphere, is in practice a physical impossibility. The one singular perfect sphere, the O, if you will, is God. Now at first this might seem like a bit of a stretch, even though it supposedly comes from comments made by the O's designer himself. But this idea of God as a perfect circle or a perfect sphere is not new. It goes back at least to the 5th century BCE and the Greek philosopher Xenophanes of Colophon, who said that God was a single eternal sphere. The idea was popular among medieval and Renaissance mystics, especially those who were linked to the Hermetic tradition. And in 1888, Russian mystic Helena Blavatsky, remember her from Nina's research on last week's podcast, wrote, The primordial form of everything manifested from atom to globe, from man to angel, is spheroidal, the sphere having been with all nations the emblem of eternity and infinity, a serpent swallowing its tail. A few lines later, she adds that for the ancients, the words cosmic circle and god, theos, in fact, were synonymous. Then, in 1951, Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges wrote Pascal's Sphere, an essay in which he traced the development of the god as sphere idea through history. All the way back in episode 1.34, Parting Shots, we talked about Japan's love affair with the works of Borges and how it was his Book of Imaginary Beings that gave us the name Abawaku. Borges published Pascal's Sphere in the 1952 essay collection Otras Inquisiciones, or Other Inquisitions. Other Inquisitions received a Japanese translation by Nakamura Kenji, and that was published in 1982, just three years before Zeta aired. We've traced Gundam's influences to the mystic Blavatsky and the poet Borges before, and I can't say that I'm surprised we've come back to them. Now, at the end of that winding road, we have a conclusion. One way or another, the name of the O is God. But the name, interesting and evocative as it is, doesn't tell the whole story, so let's dive in to the O's design. The O is a sibling to the bound dock. Both were envisioned by mecha designer Kobayashi Makoto. As with the bound dock, Kobayashi liked the design for the O so much that he would reuse it repeatedly in his later projects, including in the 1988 OVA he directed Dragon's Heaven, which featured a sentient the O lookalike called Cheyenne, who is practically the main character and fights against an army of bound dock alikes called Gomps. 
Kobayashi would even, at least if Japanese Wikipedia can be believed, name his actual human son Gio after the O. There are a few design features that I want to highlight, and these range from, oh, neat, to that seems significant, all the way to, huh. So first, and I think this one is just pure fun, according to Kobayashi, the chest section of the O is based on the front fuselage of the iconic Porsche 935 race car. Looking at them side by side, I buy it. And I'll post photos on our social media to show the comparison, so make sure you check those out. But now let's talk about the design choices that really do convey meaning. The hat, and the, um... I'm just gonna call it an arm for now, and I hope that you will all let me get away with that. The O, like the Hambrabi, has a tall, somewhat conical-style helmet. But where the Hambrabi's head formed a single smooth cone and was based on the well-known conical headdresses worn by the racist terrorist group the Ku Klux Klan in the United States, the O's much more complex helmet enjoys a far more noble lineage. Going back as far as the Heian era in Japan, men of sufficient status would wear a distinctive tall, black, and often conical helmet known as an eboshi. The eboshi was adopted by Shinto priests, and it's still worn for religious ceremonies today. Eboshi designs vary, but many look remarkably similar to the headpiece on the O. There is also precedent for wearing something like an eboshi into battle. During Japan's medieval period, armor makers took to crafting eboshi kabuto, helmets fashioned in the style of eboshi. These, like the eboshi hats themselves, indicated rank via tallness. The taller and stiffer the cap, the higher ranking the man underneath. These range from simple and practical versions to taller tate eboshi and up to stupendously tall and entirely impractical naga eboshi helmets. I don't know how accurate this is, but in modern depictions of these helmets, the tallest ones look to be about half the height of a human. So just imagine wearing that much helmet so the head of the O reflects much of what we've seen from Sirocco's character. Mysticism, elevated, even aristocratic status, religious overtones, and a sense of being not quite in step with the times. The arm is there to show us the other part of Sirocco. When I say the arm, I mean the third one, the one that is revealed in a surprise twist toward the end of this episode. Camille gets in close, and he seems to have a momentary advantage before, shock, a third arm wielding a beam saber comes slashing up from under the O's armored skirting and between the O's legs. Yes, that's right. Sirocco really designed his own personal mecha body to include an oversized, prehensile, weaponized penis. Throughout his time on the show, Sirocco has used his sexuality as a weapon, but the sexual part has always been veiled. It's always, I rely so much on you. I want you to stand beside me. We can accomplish so much together. And I believe you have the potential to be the leader who reforms humanity. It's never, I want you. But it's always there, never displayed, but also not invisible. It's veiled. 
And it could not be more clear that sex, for him, is not about pleasure or intimacy or reproduction. It is about power. It is about control. His sexuality is, like the O's third arm, a tool, a weapon. In fact, it is, to apply a term that we might use for a mobile suit's arm, a manipulator. More than almost any other character, Emma lived by her own rules and made her own decisions. She left the Titans when she saw them acting beyond the pale. She accepted the period of suspicion and distrust that naturally comes with switching sides. As a career woman, she didn't let anyone make her feel bad or wrong about not wanting to date or not caring about having kids. She roundly rejected Rekoa's gender essentialism. She seemed, by her nature, never to feel forced into things, never driven by forces outside her control. She always chose. She was a good soldier, in ways both good and bad. Her personal ideology seems to begin and end with following her orders and doing her duty. If she had another, she clearly didn't think it was as important. We frequently disliked her. She seemed to hold herself a bit apart from her fellow pilots, but we see the mask fall away in the end. Emma is genuinely heartbroken at Beckner's death. She is grateful to Camille for being with her as she dies, and cares enough about him to want to reassure him. She gets a peaceful, and dare I say it, beautiful death, rare for Zeta. Out of the battle, she conveys her last wishes, an end to the war, to someone she trusts. When the colony laser fires, she floats up from within her tomb, bathed in electricity, before her physical body disappears and her spirit ascends. What will she do now her fight is done? I don't know what new type spirits get up to when they aren't helping other new types, but I hope Emma finds peace. complicated characters in Zeta. An abusive, tyrannical, social Darwinist, most of what I'd like to say about him is not appropriate for our family-friendly podcast. His greatest accomplishment is that he assassinated Titans leader Jamatov Hyman, something no one will ever know about. If you were writing a history of this war, would you even mention him? Or would he just be the last Titans faction holdout? In death, he makes me think of Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. The frown, the wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. 
the hubris of, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. What works? His mobile suits destroyed, his followers killed, his mighty flagship obliterated. The ironic but inevitable decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Good riddance. Next time on episode 2.52, we'll meet again, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam as a whole, and since we haven't written and recorded it yet, I don't have any narrative points to reference or riff on. Send us your Zeta questions and comments by the 30th if you want us to discuss them. And for the last time on this podcast, you will see the tears of time. I'm sorry, did you say the tears of Tom? What do you have planned? Aren't you going to be so sad that we're done with Zeta? Or so happy that you cried tears of joy? One or the other. <laughs> Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, The real Zeta Gundam was the friends who died along the way, out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes to us from Quinedge. Thank you, Quinedge. Special thanks this week to voice actors Sean DMR and Edward Bauer for their assistance with the TNN. The music used in the TNN was Hitman by Kevin MacLeod and Come Play With Me, also by Kevin MacLeod. The music used in the memorial segments was Gramophone Taps by Kevin MacLeod and Gregorian Chant, also by Kevin MacLeod. The poem that appears in this week's TNN is Pax Saturni by Ezra Pound. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Yo. Why, hello there. How you doing? I find I feel a bit nervous. I don't usually feel nervous anymore when we start recording, but today I do. Oh, I almost always feel nervous. And yet the results are usually pretty good, so... Something about the end of the series, I think. Yes, this is arguably the most important episode we've made about Zeta. Como fresha. <laughs> <laughs> is Nina doing this with only her mind? Is this your power? 
Making podcasts with such foolish sentiments will only ruin the world. Maybe that will earn you points with the common people. <laughs> in which to start to pick apart... Or no, you wanted to start from general. I did, but if you want to start from Char, Haman, uh, Sirocco in the theater, that's fine by me. If the spirit moves you, or the spirits... And it's right after Sirocco has been... I want to say... What can I say instead of... Um... So I think from a strategic point of view, Bright's decision here is much more understandable. <laughs> I shouldn't say understandable. They're both understandable. Had you not thought about <laughs> the shot of him draped in women? <laughs> well, I mean, of course I've thought about it. Of course I've watched <laughs> it and thought about it. Um, I meant before we were doing this professionally. <laughs> Did you notice when he, his mobile suit deployed his secret third arm. No. Coming right out of the zone with a beam saber attached. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It's literally like an arm that comes up like this. <laughs> yuck. Sirocco is yucky. He is. Wherever it is these spirits live, wherever it is that they exist. Inside Camille. Sirocco can also go there. No,ななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななななな